Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 54, Old Comedy and Aristophanes. In addition to tragedy and the satyr play, comedy was one of the three principal dramatic forms in the theater of classical Greece. The Greek word for comedy, that being komodia, derives from the words komos, to revel, and ode, a song. And according to Aristotle, comedy actually developed from a song. The first official comedic play at the city Dionysia was not staged until 487-486 BC, by which time tragedy had already been long established there. Aristotle in his Poetics says that comedy was slow to gain official acceptance because nobody took it seriously at first. Regardless, comedic competitions at the city Dionysia and then the Linnea, more on that shortly, implemented dramatic conventions for plays to be judged, but it also fueled innovations. Aristotle also wrote that what separated comedy is that it is a representation of laughable people and involves some kind of blunder or ugliness, which does not cause pain or disaster. Developments were quite rapid though, and Aristotle and later Alexandrian scholars tried to make distinctions between comedy's various forms. So they conventionally divided Athenian comedy into three periods. The first they called Archaea, or Old. The second they called Messe, or Middle. And the third, which was the comedy of their time, they called Nia, or New. These divisions appear to be largely arbitrary, though, and ancient Athenian comedy almost certainly developed side by side over the 5th and 4th centuries BC. Old comedy survives today, largely in the form of the 11 surviving plays of Aristophanes from the 5th century BC, while middle comedy from the 4th century BC is largely lost, preserved only in a few relatively short fragments. New comedy is known primarily from the substantial papyrus fragments and one almost complete play from Menander, who flourished in the late 4th century BC, and who in turn had a large influence on the Roman comedic playwrights such as Terence and Plautus. The trend from old comedy to new comedy saw a move away from highly topical concerns with real individuals and local issues towards more generalized situations and stock characters. This was partly due to the internalization of cultural perspectives at Athens during and after the Peloponnesian War. So far, we have discussed three of the four major Athenian festivals to the god Dionysus those being the Anthesteria, the City Dionysia, and the Royal Dionysia. The fourth, the Linnea, took place in the month of Gamelion, roughly corresponding to late January or early February. The festival was in honor of Dionysus Linnaeus. The term Linnea probably comes from Lenos, meaning wine press, or from Lenai, another name for the Maenads, who were the female worshippers of Dionysus. We will talk about them more next episode. The Linnea is depicted on numerous vases, which show both the typical Maenad scenes and wine-mixing rituals. It is unknown exactly what kind of worship occurred at the festival, but it may have been in honor of the rebirth of Dionysus, after he was torn apart and put back together again as a god in his youth. It may have also had some connection with the Eleusinian mysteries, as some of the same religious officials were involved such as the Archon Basileus and the Epimeletai, or the curators. These officials led the Pompeii, or procession, which probably ended with a sacrifice of some kind, 
It's not stated specifically what all is included in this procession, but it was probably very similar to that of the Dionysia, just on a much smaller scale. Furthermore, although little is known about the ritual activities of the Linnea, we do know that Dionysus was invoked as, quote, Iacus, son of Semele, giver of wealth, end quote. Iacus played an important part in the Eleusinian procession. This association at the Linnea, though, probably arose because of the similarity of the names Iacus and Bacchus, one of the cultic names of Dionysus. Regardless, at the Linnea, they were giving thanks to the god of wine for the wealth that he gave them, meaning the wine production. In Athens, the festival was originally held in the Linnaeon. The sanctuary has left no physical trace, but it was probably a theater complex that sat outside the city limit, or in an unknown section within the Agora. Wherever it initially was, though, the festival moved to the Theater of Dionysus by the mid-5th century BC. The audiences for the Linnea were usually limited to the local population, since travel by sea at that time of year was considered unsafe. Unlike the city Dionysia, however, medics were apparently allowed to both participate in and act as Karagoi. In 442 BC, new comic contests were officially included in the program of the Linnea, though comedic plays may have been performed there earlier, on an informal basis. At first, the festival held dramatic competitions only for comedy, but in 432, a tragic contest was introduced. The contests at the Linnea afforded novices the opportunity to compete so that they could prove themselves before presenting plays at the Dionysia Festival. As with the comedic competition at the city Dionysia, five comedians usually competed with one play each, except during the Peloponnesian War, when only three were staged. When the contest for tragedy was introduced, two tragedians competed, each presenting two plays. No contest for satyr plays, nor for the singing and dancing of the dithrams were included, though. The earliest works of Athenian old comedy, dating between the 480s to the 440s BC, are almost entirely lost, except for a few fragments, and for the most part, the works of those who flourished during these formative years are now merely names to us. Although a lot of the names and works have been lost to history, some of the more well-attested ones are Chianides, Magnus, Cratus, Epilucus, Callius, and Teleclides, who all survive only in a few fragments of dubious authenticity, and we know very little about their personal lives. However, we know a little bit more about two of their contemporaries, Pherocrates and Cratinus. Pherocrates was victorious at least once at the city Dionysia, with the first probably in the mid-440s BC, and twice at the Linnea with the first of that one probably in the mid to late 430s BC. He was known for his inventive imagination, and the elegance and purity of his addiction are attested by the epithet Atticatatos, or the most Attic, which was applied to him later by Athenaeus. He was the inventor of a new meter called after him the Pherocratian, which frequently occurs in the choruses of Greek tragedies, and later in the works of the Roman poet Horace. Pherocrates was said to have written 18 plays in total, in which 288 fragments of his work have survived. Cratinus lived from 519 to 422 BC. He was victorious at least 27 times, with 8 of those being at the city Dionysia, the first probably in the mid to late 450s BC, and 3 times at the Linnea, 
with the first in that one probably in the early 430s BC. The Roman poet Horace regarded Cratinus as one of the three great masters of Athenian old comedy, the other two being Aristophanes and Eupolis. The style of Cratinus has been likened to that of Aeschylus, as he appears to have been fond of lofty diction and bold characters, and he was most successful in the lyrical parts of his dramas, with his choruses being the popular festival songs of his day. Although his poetry was often described as relatively graceless, harsh, and crudely abusive by some of his contemporaries, his plays continued to be read and studied into the Hellenistic and Roman periods. He wrote 21 comedies, and although no complete plays by Cratinus are preserved, they are known through roughly 500 fragments that have survived. When Aristophanes produced The Knights in 424 BC, he described Cratinus, quote, as a driveling old man, wandering about with his crown withered and so utterly neglected by his former admirers that he could not even procure to quench the thirst of which he was perishing, end quote. In response, the following year, in 423 BC, the 96-year-old Cratinus came out of retirement and ironically produced what would become his most famous play, titled Pitine, or The Wine Flask. The plot of the play is as follows. Cratinus inserts himself as the protagonist, as the personification of a playwright, and he becomes caught up in wine. His wife, Comedy, presumably the personification of the author's occupation, takes him to court because she believes that the young poet has betrayed her by cavorting with younger wines. Curiously, one of the younger wines in the play is Mendeos, the personification of a very popular type of ancient Greek wine, and comedy's counterpart in the suit. At the trial, Cratinus argues in his defense that it is necessary for him to drink wine, because poets, drinking only water, cannot produce good plays. But some people, probably the play's chorus, who do not like his drinking of the wine, decide to destroy his wine containers instead. The play concludes with the court eventually deciding to allow Cratinus to continue drinking wine. For this play, he took the prize at the city Dionysia, defeating the Konos of Amepsius, which took second place, and the Clouds of Aristophanes, which took third. Cratinus died the following year, in 422 BC, at a very advanced age. Other than the fact that he too, like Cratinus, bested Aristophanes' clouds, very little is known about Amepsius, and only a few fragments of his plays remain. As we have alluded to, the most illustrious Athenian old comedic playwright was Aristophanes. Although he was a very talented playwright, his illustriousness, though, is partly due to his works being the only ones to have survived intact, and thus the only ones we can study. There were many other comedic playwrights flourishing during his period. In fact, Aristophanes only was victorious at the city Dionysia once, that we know for sure, and at least three times at the Linnea. So it's quite evident that there were many other talented comedic playwrights who often bested him. We will discuss why his plays survived while others didn't a little later in the episode, though. But in addition to Aristophanes, Cratinus, Eupolis, and Amepsius, a few of the other well-attested old comedic playwrights during the Peloponnesian War period were Hermippus, Hegemonothasis, Phrynicus, Archippus, Theopompus, and Kephsodorus. Hermippus flourished in the 430s BC. He wrote around 40 plays, and the titles and fragments of nine have survived. 
He was a bitter opponent of Pericles, whom he often accused of being a bully and a coward, and of carousing with his buddies while the Spartans were invading Attica. According to Plutarch, he also accused Pericles' mistress, Aspasia, of impiety and offenses against morality, and her acquittal was only secured by an impassioned plea of Pericles that even involved tears. There will be more on that in a future episode. Anyways, he also parodied Homer and attacked the demagogue Hyperbolus, who rose to prominence after the death of Cleon. In addition, he wrote slanderous iambic poems in the manner of that of Archilochus. According to Aristotle and his Poetics, Hegemon of Thasus was the inventor of a new kind of parody. By slightly altering the wording in well-known poems, he transformed their lofty works into mocking one-liners. When the news of the disastrous defeat of the Sicilian expedition reached Athens, his parody of the Gigantomachy was being performed. It is said that the audience were so amused by it that instead of leaving to show their grief, they remained in their seats. Aristotle also criticizes him by saying, quote, Homer makes men better than they are. Hegemon the Thassian, the inventor of parodies, worse than they are. End quote. Basically, Aristotle is saying that while Homer pumps up his characters to make them seem better than they actually were, Hegemon parodied his to make them seem smaller and more outrageous than they truly were. Phrynichus composed ten plays, one of which was the Monotropus, or Solitary. It was performed at the city Dionysia in 414 BC and took third place, losing to the Birds of Aristophanes, which took second, and the Revelers of Amepsius, which took first. Another of his plays, The Muses, carried off the second prize at the Linnea in 405 BC, losing once again to Aristophanes, this time his play The Frogs in which he accuses Phrenicus of employing vulgar tricks to garner laughter, of plagiarism, of bad versification, and of lowbrow politics. Sadly, we don't have any sort of rebuttal by Phrenicus, like we do with Cratinus, but clearly these two didn't like each other. The titles and fragments from six total plays are preserved of Archippus. His most famous play was The Fishes in which he satirized the fondness of the Athenian epicures for fish. We discussed the Greek fondness for, and the various types consumed, of fish in episode 48. Anyways, he was ridiculed by his contemporaries for his fondness for playing upon words. I like a good pun, so I probably would have enjoyed his work. Moving along, two others, Theopompus and Cephisodorus, have very little details known about them besides works attributed to them in the Suda. 20 titles and 97 fragments are all that survive of Theopompus's work. For Cephisodorus, only four plays have been credited to him, with very few fragments surviving to the present. As we mentioned earlier, Eupolis was named by Horus, alongside Cratinus and Aristophanes, as the three masters of Athenian old comedy. Eupolis lived from 446 to 411 BC and he combined a lively and fertile imagination with sound practical judgment. He was reputed to be an equal to Aristophanes in elegance and purity of diction, and to Cratinus in his command of irony and sarcasm. Although he was at first on good terms with Aristophanes, their relations subsequently became strained, and they accused each other, in most virulent terms, of imitation and plagiarism. This seems to be the preferred method of attacking a rival in Athenian old comedy. 
Anyways, Eupolis obtained first prize seven times, but only fragments remain of the 19 titles attributed to him. Of these, the best known is Colacus, or the Flatterers, in which he poked fun at the extravagant Callius, who wasted his money on sophists and sycophants. This play won first prize in the city Dionysia of 421 BC, defeating Aristophanes' peace. Third place has not been recorded though. Another of his plays, Marakos, was an attack on Hyperbolus, the successor of Cleon, whom we mentioned earlier. Marakos was a fictitious name for the main character who represented Hyperbolus. His play Bapti, or The Dippers, was an attack against Alcibiades and his cohorts who practiced licentious foreign religious rites. The word Bapti was a name given to the priests of the Thracian goddess Katito, who Alcibiades and his friends supposedly worshipped. Two of his other plays, Demoi, the Demes, and Polis, the Cities, were political plays that dealt with the desperate condition of the state and with the allied, or tributary, cities during the Peloponnesian War. Other people he attacked in his other plays were Socrates, Cimon, and Cleon. There are four ancient traditions on the manner of the death and burial of Eupolis, each with details impossible to reconcile with each other. The first tradition, relayed by the Roman poet Juvenal, concerns Alcibiades. Eupolis targeted him in his play Bapti, as we mentioned, but then found himself serving under Alcibiades in the Sicilian expedition. Alcibiades retaliated by having the poet drowned on the way to Sicily. This would place Eupolis' death in the late spring or early summer of 415 BC. The second tradition is recorded by Pausanias. He reported that Eupolis died of natural causes and was buried away from Athens, with his tomb being located in the vicinity of Sicyon. Pausanias never explains the reason for a burial away from home, but it might point to Eupolis having an ancestral connection with Sicyon. The third tradition is recorded by the Roman author Claudius Aelianus, or Aelian for short. He first narrates a tale concerning Agius, a molasses dog owned by Eupolis, and how it protected the property of its master from a thief. The molasses was a breed native to southern Europe that is now extinct, but was the forerunner of the Mastiff. Anyways, Alien then mentions that Eupolis eventually died and was buried in Agina. Agius, forever loyal to his master, maintained constant watch and lamented over Eupolis's grave for a period of time until the dog finally passed away. Because of this, the location was reportedly named Koros Threnos, or Dog's Lament. Modern scholars have pointed out that this account follows a familiar pattern in ancient literary biography of adding in a tale concerning a faithful dog and how its presence benefited its master, the said master invariably being the subject of the biography. Some scholars suggest that the story may have started as a tale mentioned in comedy, and then later writers might have mistaken it for a historical account. More interesting, though, is the connection of Eupolis with Agina, as Aristophanes was also connected with this island. The fourth tradition can be found in the Suda. It claims that Eupolis was a casualty from the Peloponnesian War, as he died during a shipwreck somewhere within the Hellespont. From this account, some scholars have suggested that Eupolis' death then might be connected to either of three major battles in the region. The Battle of Sinosema in 411 BC, the Battle of Argenusai in 406 BC, 
or the Battle of Agos Potami in 405 BC. Finally, there's Aristophanes, who lives from 446 to 386 BC. Eleven of his plays survive virtually complete. We know the titles of 37, though, and he probably wrote well over 40 comedies in total. Since his works are the only extent plays to have survived from Athenian old comedy, they have come to define the genre. Sometimes called the father of comedy, with his daring political commentary and abundance of sexual innuendos, Aristophanes satirized and lampooned openly and frequently the most prominent personalities, institutions, political situations, and issues of his time, with whom he disagreed. He also went after other playwrights too. Many of his constant references to the events and personalities of Athens in the 5th century BC though, are bound to be lost on a modern audience without some understanding of his time. His innovative and sometimes rough comedy also hides more sophisticated digs at the political elite and deals with social issues such as cultural change and the role of women in Athenian society. And so, the plays of Aristophanes are not only a record of Greek theater, but also a valuable addition to the historical record, because they illustrate, perhaps better than anything else, many of the political and social aspects of daily life in classical Athens, both urban and rural, ranging from the practicalities of jury service to the details of religious rituals, in major festivals, and so forth. With the caveat, though, that it is comedy after all and some aspects portrayed in the plays could very well be exaggerated. Regardless, if the purpose of history is to reanimate the lives of those in the past, the comedies of Aristophanes succeed at this in the best and most direct fashion. Aristophanes first enters the historical record in 427 BC, when he won second prize at the city Dionysia with his first play, Detalis, or The Banqueteers, which unfortunately is now completely lost. He won first prize there the following year in 426 BC with his next play, Babylonioi, or the Babylonians, which is also lost. It was usual for foreign dignitaries to attend the city Dionysia, since it was held in the spring when the seas were navigable, and not so much at the Linnea, which took place in the winter when the seas were nearly unnavigable. So clearly, if you wanted to make the biggest political statements, you had to do it at the city Dionysia. And this is exactly what Aristophanes did. The result was that the Babylonians caused some embarrassment for the Athenian authorities, since it depicted the cities of the Delian League as slaves grinding at a mill. Some influential citizens, notably Cleon, condemned the play as slander against the Athenian state, and he may have possibly taken legal action against Aristophanes. It's not entirely sure, though. If he did, the details of the trial went unrecorded or have been lost. But the following year, in 425 BC, speaking through the hero of his third play, the Carnians, Aristophanes responds to Cleon's condemnation. In the play, he reveals his resolve not to yield to any sort of political intimidation, and he will continue to criticize what he believes should be criticized. The Carnians is the oldest work to have survived from Aristophanes, and the genre of old comedy altogether. We will cover this play and the other plays of Aristophanes more fully in future episodes when we discuss the Peloponnesian War, because it just doesn't make much sense to discuss them without fully being immersed into the political situation of the time. Anyways, Aristophanes' surviving plays are the Acarnians in 425 BC, 
which was about the formation of a peace treaty, the Knights in 424 BC, which was an attack on Cleon, the Clouds in 423 BC, which criticizes Socrates for corruption and sophistry, the Wasps in 422 BC, which pokes fun at the Athenian jury system and the Athenians' preoccupation with litigation, Peace in 421 BC, which was on peace with Sparta, the Birds in 414 BC, where birds construct a new city in the sky, which was better than the gods' home on Mount Olympus, Lysistrata in 411 BC, where women across Greece go on a sex strike to compel their men to make peace, the women celebrating the Thesmophoria, also in 411 BC, where women debate the elimination of Euripides, the frogs in 405 BC, where Dionysus visits Hades and judges a poetry competition between Aeschylus and Euripides, the assembly women in 392 BC, where women take over Athens and make all property communal, and wealth in 388 BC, where the god of wealth regains his sight and no longer distributes riches at random. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Fantasy football fans, the wait is nearly over. Football season is back, which means FanDuel is back. FanDuel is one-week fantasy football, meaning that there are new contests starting every week, and you get to choose a new team each time. There are no lengthy drafts, and there are no busted seasons due to injuries. There's no season-long commitment either. FanDuel has lots of contests to choose from, starting at just $1. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score real-time. New users get a free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with over $1 million in cash prizes. Just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with the promo code ANCIENTGREASE. I'll also be doing a listener league, so you'll have the opportunity to play against me and other of the History of Ancient Greece podcast listeners for bragging rights. To join, go to www.fanduel.com forward slash ancient Greece. Once again, you can sign up today by going to fanduel.com, click the join now button, and use the promo code ancient Greece. And then go to www.fanduel.com forward slash ancient Greece to join Ancient Greece's FanDuel League. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Shifting gears, let's talk about what old comedy actually was. Since the city Dionysia and the Linnea were celebrated in honor of Dionysus, the god of wine and ecstasy, old comedy can be best understood as a celebration of the exuberant sense of release that was inherited in his worship. During the city Dionysia, a statue of the god was brought to the theater from a temple outside of the city, and it remained in the theater throughout the festival, overseeing the plays like a privileged member of the audience. In The Frogs, the god Dionysus appears as a dramatic character, and he enters the theater ludicrously disguised as Heracles. He observes to the audience that every time he is on hand to hear a joke from a comic dramatist like Phrynichus, one of Aristophanes' rivals, as we've mentioned, he ages by more than a year. This scene opens the play, and it is a reminder to the audience that nobody is above mockery in old comedy, not even its patron god and its practitioners. In fact, gods were frequently portrayed in comedies as cowards or thieves. And so gods, other playwrights, politicians, and even ordinary citizens were legitimate targets, as comedy was a kind of licensed buffoonery, and there was no legal redress for anyone who was slandered in a play. 
However, there were certain limits to the scope of the satire, but they are not easily defined. For instance, impiety could be punished in 5th century BC Athens, which meant the questioning of the existence of the gods or implying that they shouldn't be worshipped. But the absurdities, implicit in the traditional religion, were open to ridicule, as we've mentioned. Also, the polis was not allowed to be slandered, but what constituted slander depended on who was in the audience and which festival was involved, like with the Babylonians of Aristophanes. So basically, there were no black and white rules, but gray areas. And like we do today, attic comedians pushed those boundaries to its furthest extent. All actors in classical Athenian drama wore masks, but whereas in tragedy and later new comedy, these identified stereotypical stock characters. In old comedy, the images on the masks were often caricatures of real people who would have been known to the audience. For example, Socrates was a notoriously ugly man, and it's perhaps why he attracted so much attention in old comedic plays, because his hideous-looking face lent itself easily to caricature by mask-makers. In regards to the knights, we are told that the mask-makers were too afraid to make a caricature of Cleon, who instead was represented as a Paphlagonian slave. But we are assured that the audience was clever enough to identify the slave as a representation of Cleon anyway. Also, since old comedy makes numerous references to people who would have been in the audience, the theater itself was the real scene of action, and theatrical illusion was also treated as something of a joke. In the Acarnians, for example, the Penix Hill is just a few steps from the hero's front door. The result is that the audience is sometimes drawn or even dragged into the action. When the hero in the piece returns to Athens from his flight to Olympus, he tells the audience that they look like rascals when seen from the heavens, and when seen up close, they look even worse. In the Acarnians, the hero confronts the Archon Basileus, sitting in the front row, and demands to be awarded first prize for a drinking competition, which is a none too subtle way for Aristophanes to request first prize for the drama competition. Furthermore, Oftentimes, the playwrights had their choruses appeal directly to the audience for a louder applause, much like we might do today, so that their play would win the prize. Because the judges, after all, could be influenced by which plays the audience responded the loudest to. Frequent parodying of tragedy is an aspect of old comedy that modern audiences might find difficult to understand. But we must keep in mind that the Linnea and City Dionysia included performances of both comedies and tragedies, and so references to tragedy were highly topical and immediately relevant to the original audience. The comic dramatist not only poked fun at other dramatic poets, but he might even have ridiculed himself. For example, it is quite possible that Aristophanes even mocked his own baldness. Other instances of this can be seen in the clouds when the chorus compares Aristophanes to an unwed young mother, and in the Acarnians, when the chorus mockingly depicts him as Athens' greatest weapon in the war against Sparta. So nobody, not even themselves, were beyond ridicule for the comedic playwrights. The Linnea and City Dionysia were state-sponsored religious festivals, and though the latter was the more prestigious of the two, both were occasions for official pomp and circumstance, as we have discussed. Religious and political issues were topics that could hardly be ignored in such a setting, and the plays often treat them quite seriously. 
The butts of the most savage jokes are opportunists who prey on the gullibility of their fellow citizens, including oracle mongers, the exponents of new religious practices, war profiteers, and political fanatics. In the Arcanians, for example, Lamachus is represented as a crazed militarist whose preparations for war are hilariously compared to the hero's preparations for a dinner party. Cleon emerges from numerous similes and metaphors in the Knights as a shifting form of comic evil, clinging to political power by every possible means for as long as he can, yet the play also includes simple hymns invoking Poseidon and Athena, and it ends with visions of a miraculously transformed Demos, meaning the morally reformed citizenry of Athens. Imaginative visions of a return to peaceful activities, resulting from peace with Sparta, and a plea for leniency for citizens suspected of complicity in an oligarchic revolt, are other examples of a serious purpose behind the plays. And so a festival audience presented the comic dramatist with a wide range of targets, not just political or religious ones. Anyone or anything known to the audience could be mocked for any reason such as diseases, physical deformities, ugliness, family misfortunes, bad manners, perversions, dishonesty, cowardice in battle, clumsiness, and so forth. Furthermore, foreigners, who were a conspicuous presence in imperial Athens, particularly at the city Dionysia, as we have mentioned, often appear in the plays comically mispronouncing Attic words. These include Spartans and Lysistrata, Scythians, and the women celebrating the Thesmophoria, and Persians, Boeotians, and Megarians, and the Acarnians. Although the Linnea and City Dionysia were religious festivals, they resembled a gala more so than a church service in the modern sense. A relaxation in standards of behavior was permitted, and the holiday spirit included body irreverence towards both men and gods. Old comedy is rich in obscenities and crude jokes that are often very detailed and difficult to understand to the modern audience, without scholarly commentary, that is. For example, when the chorus in the Arcanians places a curse on Antimachus, a Coregos accused of miserly conduct, they wish upon him a nighttime mugging as he returns home from some drunken party, and envision him as he stoops down to pick up a rock in the darkness accidentally picking up a fresh turd instead. He is then envisioned hurling the turd at his attacker, missing and accidentally hitting Kratinus, a lyric poet not admired by Aristophanes, as we've mentioned. This would have been particularly funny to the audience because the curse was sung, or chanted, in choreographed style by a chorus of 24 grown men who were otherwise known to the audience as respectable citizens of Athens. Consistent with this holiday spirit, much of the humor in old comedy is slapstick buffoonery and dirty jokes that do not require the audience's careful attention, as they instead often relied on visual cues. Actors playing male roles wore tights over grotesque padding with an enormous leather erect phallus that was barely concealed by a short tunic. Female characters were played by men, but were easily recognized by their long, saffron-colored tunics. Sometimes the visual cues are deliberately confused for comic effect, as in The Frogs, where Dionysus arrives on stage wearing the saffron tunic, the buskin boots of a tragic actor, and a lion skin cloak that usually characterized Heracles, an absurd outfit that no doubt provoked the audience to boisterous laughter.
Technically, the competition in the dramatic festivals was not between poets, but between choruses. But as we have seen, the chorus progressively lost its importance throughout the 5th century BC. But this was not the case with old comedy, where the chorus was still very vital to their success, long after it had lost its relevance for tragedy. In fact, eight of Aristophanes' eleven surviving plays are named after the chorus. In Aristophanes' time, the chorus in tragedy was relatively small, with twelve members, and its role had been reduced to that of an awkwardly placed commentator. But in old comedy, the chorus was large, numbering twenty-four. It was actively involved in the plot. Its entry into the action was frequently spectacular. Its movements were practiced with military precision, and sometimes it was involved in choreographed skirmishes with the actors. The monetary expenditure on costumes, training, and maintenance of a chorus was considerable, and perhaps many people in the original audience enjoyed comedy more so than tragedy because of the spectacle and the music. The chorus, though, would gradually lose its significance in comedy as new comedy began to develop. Old comedy was the comedy of a vigorously democratic polis at the height of its power, and so it gave Aristophanes the freedom to explore the limits of humor, even to the point of undermining the humor itself. Plots and events in the plays were fantastically impossible, and there were unexplained jumps in time and place. For example, in The Clouds, Socrates was depicted as spending much of his time suspended in a basket in the sky, seeking philosophical inspiration. When this occurred, the actors would suddenly turn and speak directly to the audience, which happily accepted all of these absurdities. Situations are developed logically to absurd conclusions. The crazy costume worn by Dionysus and the frogs, which we have mentioned twice already, is typical of an absurd result obtained on logical grounds. He wears the saffron-colored tunic of a woman because effeminacy is an aspect of his divinity, Buskin boots, because he is interested in reviving the art of tragedy, and a lion skin cape, because, like Heracles, his mission leads him into Hades. Absurdities also develop logically from initial premises in a plot. In The Knights, for example, Cleon's corrupt service to the people of Athens is metaphorically depicted as a household relationship in which the slave dupes his master. The introduction of a rival, who is not a member of the household, leads to an absurd shift in the metaphor, so that Cleon and his rival become Aristi competing for the affections of an Aromenos, as well as hawkers of oracles competing for the attention of a credulous public, athletes in a race for approval, and orators competing for the popular vote. Furthermore, in Aristophanes, the hero is an independent-minded and self-reliant individual, Typically, he devises a complicated and highly fanciful escape from an impossible situation. For example, Dickiopolis in the Acarnians contrives a private peace treaty with the Spartans. Bedelicleon in the Wasps turns his own house into a private law court in order to keep his jury-addicted father safely at home. Tregarius in the Peace flies to Mount Olympus on a giant dung beetle in order to obtain an end to the Peloponnesian War. Pistheteris, in The Birds, tired of a life in Athens, sets off to create a new home in an imaginary kingdom of birds, between heaven and earth, where he becomes their ruler and a rival to the gods. And so these are the kind of suspension of disbelief plot lines found in Aristophanes. But at the same time, even today, this type of impossibility is very popular in a lot of modern action, comedy, fantasy, and horror movies.
the numerous surprising developments in an Aristophanic plot, the changes in scene, and the farcical comings and goings of minor characters towards the end of a play, were managed according to theatrical convention, with only three principal actors. A fourth actor, often the leader of the chorus, was permitted to deliver short speeches. Songs and addresses to the audience by the chorus gave the actors hardly enough time off stage to catch their breath and to prepare for the next scene. The action of an Aristophanic play obeyed a crazy logic of its own, and yet it always unfolded within a formal dramatic structure that was repeated with minor variations from one play to another. The prologue was an introductory scene with a dialogue or soliloquy addressed to the audience that explains the situation that is to be resolved in the play. The parados was the arrival of the chorus, dancing and singing, which was sometimes followed by a choreographed skirmish with one or more of the actors. There was also a passage in each play when the action stopped, and while the actors were leaving the stage, the chorus or the chorus leader delivered an address to the audience expressing the views of the poet on some topic of current interest in Athens. This was known as the parabasis of a play. Generally, it occurred somewhere in the middle of a play, sort of like an intermission, and also there was a second parabasis towards the end. The agon was a formal debate that decides the outcome of the play. The rules of competition did permit a playwright to arrange and adjust these elements to suit his needs though. For example, some plays have no formal agon, while others might have two agons. The exodus was the departure of the chorus and the actors, once again in song and dance, celebrating the hero's victory and sometimes celebrating his symbolic marriage. In between these different structural elements were episodes or songs that drove the plot. The holiday spirit might also have been responsible for an aspect of the comedic plot that may also seem bewildering to modern audiences. The major agon between the good and bad characters in a play is often resolved decisively in favor of the former long before the end of the play, which is different from modern shows where this is usually sorted out at the very end. The rest of the play then deals with farcical consequences and a succession of loosely connected scenes. The anticlimactic nature of old comedy has been explained by scholars in a variety of ways, depending on the particular play. In The Wasps, for instance, it has been thought to indicate a gradual change in the main character's perspective, as the lessons of the Agon are slowly absorbed. In The Arcarnians, it has been explained in terms of a unifying theme that underlines the episodes, demonstrating the practical benefits that come with wisdom. But generally speaking, the early release of dramatic tension is consistent with the holiday spirit in old comedy, and it allows the audience to relax in uncomplicated enjoyment of the spectacle, the music, the jokes, and the celebrations that characterize the remainder of the play. The celebration of the hero's victory often concludes in a sexual conquest, and sometimes it takes the form of a wedding, thus providing the action with a joyous sense of closure or a happy ending. Aristophanes has been said to recreate the life of ancient Athens more convincingly than any other author. Paradoxically, though, we know very little about his personal life. Biographical facts that we do know are derived from within his own plays, typically from the Parabasis. His father was from the deme of Kidathenion, but his own birthplace was a matter of some dispute amongst his contemporaries. Some claim that he was born on Rhodes, others at Naucratis in Egypt, and yet others in Agina. 
These disputes arose because Cleon had accused Aristophanes of being foreign and usurping the rights of a citizen of Athens. However, it is certain that he spent a majority of his time on Agina, where he owned land. He was a comedic poet in an age when it was conventional for a poet to assume the role of a teacher, called Didascalus, and though this specifically referred to his training of the chorus in rehearsal, it also covered his relationship with the audience as a commentator on significant issues. Aristophanes claimed to be writing for a clever and discerning audience, yet he also declared that he would judge the audience according to its reception of his plays. He sometimes boasts of his originality as a dramatist, yet his plays consistently espouse opposition to radical new influences in Athenian society. He caricatured leading figures in the arts, notably Euripides, whose influence on his own work he once begrudgingly acknowledged, in politics, especially the populist Cleon, and in philosophy, where Socrates was the most obvious target. Such caricatures seem to imply that Aristophanes was an old-fashioned conservative, but it's also likely that the political conservatism of his plays may reflect the views of the wealthiest section of Athenian society, who were the Karegoi, and on whose generosity all dramatists depended for putting on their plays. Aristophanes himself criticized the excesses of all unworthy representatives of the democracy of Athens, such as corrupt state officials, slanderers, embezzlers, and any politician whom money could buy. He was a friend of peace. He hated civil war and its consequent poverty, devastation, and death. But the moral corruption and the depravity of politicians, who had linked their personal advantage to the perpetuation of war, enraged him most of all. Plato's version of the Symposium appears to be a useful source of biographical information about Aristophanes, but it's a fictional portrayal, and so it should be used with caution. It purports to be a record of conversations at a dinner party, at which both Aristophanes and Socrates are guests, held in 416 BC, some seven years after the performance of The Clouds, the play in which Socrates was cruelly caricatured. One of the guests, Alcibiades, even quotes from the play when teasing Socrates over his appearance, and yet there is no indication of any ill will between Socrates and Aristophanes. Plato's Aristophanes is in fact a genial character who divides his time between Aphrodite and Dionysus, meaning love and wine, and this has been interpreted as evidence of Plato's own friendship with him. Their friendship appears to be corroborated by an epitaph for Aristophanes, reportedly written by Plato himself, in which the playwright's soul is compared to an eternal shrine for the graces. On the other hand, in his Apology, Plato blamed Aristophanes for fueling a public distrust of Socrates. Also, Plato was only a boy when the events in the Symposium are supposed to have occurred, and it is possible that his portrayal of Aristophanes is in fact based on a later reading of his plays. For example, conversation amongst the guests turns to the subject of love, and Aristophanes explains his notion of it in terms of an amusing allegory, a device he often uses in his plays. He is represented as suffering an attack of hiccups, and this might be a humorous reference to the crude physical jokes in his plays too. He tells the other guests that he is quite happy to be thought amusing, but he is wary of appearing ridiculous. This fear of being ridiculed is consistent with his declaration in the Nights that he embarked on the career of a comedic playwright, suspiciously, after witnessing the public contempt and ridicule that other dramatists had incurred. When Aristophanes first made his entrance into the comedic stage in 427 BC, 
Athens was an ambitious imperial power, and the Peloponnesian War was only in its fourth year. His plays often express pride in the achievement of the older generation, or those who fought at Marathon. Yet they are not jingoistic, and they are staunchly opposed to the war with Sparta. The plays are particularly scathing in criticism of war profiteers, among whom populists such as Cleon figure prominently. Since Aristophanes managed to survive the Peloponnesian War, two oligarchic revolutions, and two democratic restorations, while many other public figures did not, this has been interpreted as evidence that he was not actively involved in politics, despite his highly political plays. By the time his last play was produced, around 386 BC, Athens had been defeated in war, its empire had been dismantled, and it had undergone a transformation from being the political power to merely the intellectual center of Greece. Aristophanes was part of this transformation, and he shared in the intellectual fashions of the period. The tragic dramatists, Sophocles and Euripides, died near the end of the Peloponnesian War, and the art of tragedy thereafter ceased to develop, yet comedy continued to evolve after the defeat of Athens, and it's entirely possible that it only did so because in Aristophanes, it had a master craftsman who managed to live long enough in order to help usher it into this new age. Also, we can see an evolution in the structure of his plays from old comedy until in his last surviving play, Wealth II, a revision of his former in 388 BC, it more closely resembles that of new comedy. However, it is uncertain whether he led or merely responded to changes in his audience's expectations. Indeed, according to one ancient source, one of Aristophanes' last plays, Aeoliscon, performed in 386 BC, had neither a parabasis nor any choral lyrics, making it a type of middle comedy, while Colacus, performed in 387 BC, anticipated all of the elements of new comedy, including a rape and a recognition scene. However, we do know that two of his sons, Aratos and Nicostratos, were also comic poets, and they could have been heavily involved in the production of their father's last three plays, Wealth II, Kalakos, and Aeliscon, and might have had an influence on the changes too. Upon his death, Aristophanes was honored with a wreath from the holy olive tree of Athena, indicating that he was held in great esteem by his contemporaries. Even the king of Persia is said to have advised the Spartans to find an advisor of Aristophanes' caliber. Aristophanes seems to have had some appreciation of his formative role in the development of comedy, as he indicated by his comment in the clouds that his audience would be judged by other times according to its reception of his plays. The clouds was awarded third place, meaning last, after its original performance, but the text that has come down to the modern age was a subsequent draft that Aristophanes intended to be read rather than acted. The circulation of his plays in manuscript form extended their influence beyond the original audience, over whom they seemed to have had little or no practical influence initially. For example, they did not affect the career of Cleon, they failed to persuade the Athenians to pursue an honorable peace with Sparta, and regardless of what Plato may have asserted, it is not clear that they were instrumental in the trial and execution of Socrates whose death probably resulted from the public animosity towards the philosopher's disgraced associates, such as Alcibiades, and of course exacerbated by his own stubbornness during the trial. The plays, though, in manuscript form, would have a much greater impact long after his death, and they have been put to some surprising uses. As was indicated earlier, they were used in the study of rhetoric on the recommendation of Quintilian, and by students of the Attic dialect in the 4th and 5th centuries AD. 
It's also possible that Plato sent copies of the plays to Dionysus of Syracuse so that he might learn about Athenian life and government. Furthermore, Latin translations of the plays were circulated widely throughout Europe during the Renaissance, and these were soon followed by translations and adaptations in modern languages. The plays also have a significance that goes beyond their artistic function, as historical documents that open the window on life and politics in classical Athens, in which respect they are perhaps as important as the writings of Herodotus and Thucydides. The artistic influence of the plays is equally immeasurable, though. They have contributed to the history of European theater, and that history in turn shapes our understanding of the plays. We will go into these plays much deeper in future episodes. Because unlike the tragic plays of Sophocles and Euripides, for example, which were also produced with the backdrop of the Peloponnesian War, the humor of Aristophanes' comedic plays will be much easier to understand and more valuable if discussed in the historical times that they were produced. And so we will cover them when we cover the upcoming Peloponnesian War. But before we get there, we are going to leave comedy here for now. On the next episode, we will finish up our tour of all things in the realm of Dionysus, by looking at Euripides' back eye and the mysterious cult of the god of wine and ecstasy. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 55, The Dionysian Mysteries. (laughs) 